world that you're concerned about because your life is so troubled right now that you're not even sure he even has your life in his hands. The prophet we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, and if you're new today, it's found in the Old Testament. He was a minor prophet. He didn't write much. But his day and age, 600 years before Jesus Christ walked on this earth, was one which he looked around and said, why all the turmoil? Why the wars? Why the disasters? Why the poverty? Why the disobedience? Why the immorality? God, are you ever going to do anything about it? And God and him had a conversation. They discussed things. And so Habakkuk was his name. It means the wrestler. He was wrestling with God and and trying to embrace God in the midst of all of it. And so what we have is Habakkuk crying out to God these words that we find in chapter 1. How long, Lord? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out for you, to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. These were his questions and his thoughts to God. And they can be summed up in these three kinds of statements of his longing. The first is, God, do you, you don't seem to really care. God, you, you aren't doing much when you could. And God, what you are doing doesn't seem to be fair. So Habakkuk lays it out to God, and guess what God does? He comes back, and he first says something that gives a little bit of hope. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe, even if you were told. So he gets pretty excited. He says, all right. Let's get at it. Change the way the world is. You must truly have the whole world in your hands. And then he sort of does this 180 on Habakkuk, and he tells them that his plan to help change the world is to allow a corrupt group of people to begin taking them over as a nation. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. So if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you're familiar with this challenge that's going on back and forth. Those of you who are new, I wanted to bring you into that understanding of it. But the prophet was wrestling with God. Do you really have the whole world in your hands? And God says, I got it. I'll take care of it. I'm going to raise up some more wicked people than you are to take you out. What? That doesn't make sense at all. But God has his ways. Scripture says his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. And sometimes we wrestle with this doesn't seem to be coming together, whether it's in the world picture or maybe it's in our own personal life. God, what are you doing? But he does have the world in his hands. He is the sovereign God. The word sovereign means that he is in control of all things in all ways at all times. And that's who we worship this morning. 
and he will make all things that are wrong right, but in his time. And that's what he began to teach Habakkuk. Wait for it. In fact, the whole taking over of Judah by the Babylonians was a crushing blow and they were exported into a foreign land, what is today modern-day Iraq. And he wanted to jolt the Israelites back into a right relationship with him. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we have not only talked about God having the whole world in his hand on a macro scale of the world, but your personal world. And we've had this little line. And uh, this little line describes your life and my life. It describes our spiritual life. And we walk through this idea that um, if we're going to wrestle with God and embrace him, we all begin at the same point in life. Doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home, you went to church when you were an infant, we all start down at this bottom end that we have no life in God. We have no spiritual life unless we make a decision to follow Christ, to follow God as he works in our heart. But then, as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, sometimes challenges come and we're not uh, quite as excited when we have our Christian uh, faith uh, because it's not like working out maybe like we planned. And some crises start to hit and sometimes a big crisis can hit that can lead to a crisis of belief. And that crisis of belief causes us to look in one of two directions what we're going to do with our life. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened to me. What should I do? And then you, you start to think, well, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. And so one idea is to live in denial and try to jump back to your mountain peak experience spiritually and say, hey, everything's good. I'm fine. God's going to work this out. And there's nothing wrong in being optimistic like we've talked about. But to live in denial that you are in crisis is going to be a problem. Because a crisis of belief comes, a crisis of belief came to Habakkuk, especially as they were taken away by the Babylonians, that we need to give heed to. So some people try to ignore it. Other people just quit. They go back and say, forget it. Forget it, God. I'm not walking with you. This is not going to work out. And so we have this point in time where we have to choose what we're going to do. And some of you this morning, maybe are at a crisis of belief. Maybe you've walked with God for a while. Maybe you're back trying to check him out today and see if he has any spiritual place in your life. What you need to do is continue in down, down into what we refer to as the dip because God can begin to work in your life if you will seek him, if you will try to understand what he's doing, if you'll be patient and wait on him, if you'll contemplate his purposes for your life. He will be able to take you out of a pit and lead you up into a place of strength. And that place of strength will lead you to inter, in, greater intimacy with Jesus greater trust in him, a greater sense of security. And so we followed this curve, and we all have that curve. Any of you have a life that goes like right, right up, and then it's steady, and it's been steady for 10 years? Any of you have that kind of life? Any of you have a life where, you know, it, it, it goes up and then down, and it's like a jagged heartbeat going up and down? You have one of those kinds of lives? Any of you on the top and you're worried about this dip right now? You're waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of idea, right? Some of you, and I won't ask you to raise your hands, you may be down here in the dip. And you're wrestling and struggling, 
with what God's doing. And this crisis of belief is significant for you. Well, last week we said what you need to do is you can't just ignore it. You can't quit. You have to go down into it. And when you go down into the dip, the crisis of belief in your life, whatever it may be, you have to choose to live by faith. And we unpacked that a little bit last week. But this is what I want to do here this morning. Because I have found this to be true when I've tried to encourage other people, whether in a formal counseling situation or maybe just as a friend. And maybe you have a friend that you're trying to encourage who's down here in the dip and you're trying to let them know you just need to live by faith. Is that a lot of times I'm down here trying to encourage people to live by faith when they've missed out on something rather significant. And what that is is that they have never been made alive by faith. You see, the Scripture says that we are spiritually dead. We are flatlined. What do you mean, Carrie? I'm walking around. i got a heartbeat. i got some excitement going. I'm glad we got some in and out coming. What do you mean? Spiritually dead. Scripture's adamant that you and I are flatlined unless the Spirit of God dwells internally within us as living human beings. And if you are in a dip, in a crisis of belief, a challenge in your life, wondering if God's got not only the whole world in his hand, does he have you in his hands, and you have never become alive by the transforming, big word, regeneration of the Holy Spirit, then that's where you need to begin. And in fact, if you are working and encouraging somebody in your life and you see that to be true with them, that uh, they're really not able to live by faith because they've never been made alive by faith, then you need to point this out. Because we can spend an awful lot of time trying to get people to become alive in their faith with Christ because they're in a dip when they've never become alive with Christ in the beginning, and they're sitting over here. So this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. And whether you're a longtime person who's tried to follow God or someone who really maybe isn't quite sure why you came today, I want you to know that your life needs to begin here, and it needs to move there. Being spiritually flatlined is no life at all. One of our favorite verses is a church. You know, here we are, anniversary weekend, the Awakening Church. Why, why that name? Because we say we want people to be fully alive in Christ and to his mission. But the verse John 10.10 says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. If you want to have life, then you have to begin with an understanding that you are spiritually dead. You might have some spiritual interest. You might be a good person in your side or in the side of others. But there is something supernatural that has not happened in your life yet. If you're here on this end of the continuum, you are flatlined. And it's almost like somebody needs to come and, and give you one of those fibrillators and boom, give you a jolt to wake you up. But if you've never crossed the line of faith and committing your life to Christ, then you've never even had that spark of life in you. 
So that's why scripture and Jesus himself taught people that they needed to be born again. You're born the first time in water, birth, but you're born the second time by the spirit. And though that term born again has gotten thrown around and sort of messed up a little bit today and all kinds of meanings attached or not attached to it, born again in Jesus's mind was you going from being spiritually flatlined to being alive. The idea of being spiritually dead, it's taught in Scripture. The Apostle Paul taught it. It's something we don't really like to focus on because there's people around us that we love that are dead spiritually. When Adam and Eve seen, sin said the wages of sin is death, it wasn't a physical death immediately there. It was a spiritual death. And they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, a relationship with God. And ever since then, God's been trying to restore relationships with every human being that's been created. But every human being that's been created, that God created in the mother's womb, has been given a sinful nature. And that sinful nature is dead until it is redeemed and changed. And life is born anew spiritually. Ephesians 2 1 says this As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Pretty clear. Habakkuk had a challenge. He knew his nation needed to change and there needed to be repentance. And God, whatever you need to do, do it. But then when God says, I'm going to use the people that are worse than you, the Babylonians, to come and take you captive, he really was struggling. And he says, well, God, they're, they're worse than we are. What, what about them? Why would you use them? And he says, don't you think that I know that? I'm going to deal with them in time. And it would take 70 years ultimately for God to deal with the Babylonians from the time that he spoke to Habakkuk in 605 B.C. But the Babylonians, they were spiritually dead. And in chapter 2, we went through it just quick last week. I don't know if you had a chance to read back into chapter 2 this week of Habakkuk. But there were the five woes that were laid out. He said, see, he Babylonian is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And then he went through one at a time. Number one woe was the woe of the thieves. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy for extortion. Next was to the cheaters and the deceivers in verse 9. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain and sets his nest on high to escape the crutches of ruin, clutches of ruin. And then the woe to the violent ones. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. And then the fourth woe was to the partiers. Yes, to the partiers. To him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. And then the fifth woe was to idolaters. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. And though we think in terms of an idol as an image today, we have all kinds of idols that we pursue and worship too. 
Sometimes it takes no longer than to look at your planner schedule and your checkbook. So he gave these woes, these five woes. He says, I know. You know why? Because the Babylonians, like all human beings, have been born in sin and they're spiritually dead. Gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature, following the ways of the world, and submitting to the spirit in the spiritual realm of the dark side. Our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil himself. And if we have not become spiritually alive in a moment in time in Christ, then we are spiritually dead and flatlined. And God would say to you, and this, I know it's like, wow, I, I didn't come for a downer today. I came for an upper. <laughs> I want you to sometimes you just got to deal with reality. I, I appreciate it if you're an optimistic person or idealistic, that kind of thing. But t- to be a realist is very helpful spiritually. And to be a realist, you and I need to own that outside of Christ, we are spiritually flatlined. We are dead. And so for us to look at how to live by faith, we need to gauge whether or not we have truly become alive by faith. And I question that in my life for a good period of time, doubting my salvation, doubting that if I, did I ever really invite Jesus Christ into my life? And God worked in my spirit to to make sure that I truly had come to that place where I'd become spiritually alive in him and I owned who I was. And I may not have had a bunch of those woes that he threw out against the Babylonians, but there were some other woes if I was honest with myself. See, the Babylonians, they're puffed up. His desires are not upright. And if you're here last week, the next part of this verse is the central part of the whole prophecy and dialogue that happens in the book of Habakkuk. But the righteous will live by faith. Chapter 2, verse 4 highlights that, yes, you have all these other kinds of people, the thieves, the immoral person, the partiers, those kinds of things. But then there are the righteous. And the righteous will live by their faith. And so if we're to jump into that camp, then something has to change in us. Something has to be transformed within us. The key phrase, the righteous will live by his faith. How many of you ever heard that phrase before this series started? The righteous will live by faith or the just will live by faith. This term has been central throughout Christian history because it sort of bridges the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures in the past before Jesus to what's on the other side of Jesus and ultimately into eternity. And it seems to be sort of, um, it's just sort of said in passing by Habakkuk. But that phrase, the righteous will live by his faith, has been transformative to why you and I are even here in this building today. And I'm going to explain that in a second. Righteous can also be translated just. Is to be in right standing with God. To stand justified before God and not guilty. Righteous. 
there's actually three places in the New Testament where this phrase is used because it's not explained fully in the Old Testament. And God in his sovereignty unpacks it in the life of the Apostle Paul in three different places. In Romans 117, in Galatians 311, and in Hebrews 1038. Though Paul probably didn't write Hebrews, someone else did. But it unpacks this phrase, the righteous will live by their faith. Now, some of us this morning can readily identify with the fact that we are part of the woes. I've been a liar. I've been a stealer. I've been a thief. I've been a double-minded person. I've, you know, uh, not walked a a road uh, of purity. I've engaged in violence before. And and if you were honest with yourself in your spiritually flatlined state, yes, that would have been true. But when you come to know Jesus, everything changes with your identity. And you are counted with the righteous. You are one who has become right with God. You are justified. You are are not guilty. And some of us need to hear that today. But it's hard for us because as surely as like we're a little queasy about all those other terms with the woes, we're also a little queasy about this term righteous because we know we've not measured up. Do I really want the term righteous on me? This last week I had opportunity, uh, I sit on a, a board of a ministry called Forge, and it develops young adults and adults to, to develop and grow in their faith and be on a mission for God. And I sit on this board because I have history with it through the years, and uh, the guy who leads it actually um, used to be my youth pastor. I've mentioned him before. His name's Dwight Robertson. I'm going to have him come and speak here someday. And Dwight, uh, he had the name tags made up for all the board members, so I arrived there and I got it. And my name tag and my syllabus that was marked out for us as board members had Dr. Carrie Bowman on it. Well, some of you know that this past year in June, I was able to finish my doctorate of ministry. It was a long journey for me. I'm glad I've got it done. But I told all of you on that day you, uh, that I came back from graduation that you had one weekend to refer to me as Dr. Carrie Bowman, and then we're done with it right? And I'm like, Dwight, do not reference me. Why did you put that on there? He says, yeah, you earned it. You might as well wear it. And I go, whatever. I feel queasy about that term because I was just continuing my studies and that's fine. Doctor of ministry. But some of us, it's almost like if someone made a name tag for you that said righteous, you know, Sally Smith, would you wear that? Would you want your syllabus to say, you know, righteous, you know, uh, Tom Parnakian? I know I can pick on Tom. We don't, that righteous, is that us? We're trying to earn our righteousness, aren't we? We're trying to get better. We're trying to do better. Righteous, but it says the righteous will live by faith. It's it's an identification point that you have changed from your old life to your new life. You have gone from being spiritually flatlined to being alive by faith, and your identity has changed, and now you are counted as part of the righteous ones, and that's your title, not because of your righteousness, but because of God's righteousness. And so when you commit your life to Christ, something radically changes in your identity and who you are. 
And we as Christians, if you're a Christ follower this morning, you need to reckon with this as surely as the Apostle Paul did and as some others that we're going to mention here in a second. And so Paul, who was a very tried to be righteous person in the sight of Judaism, but really he was, he was condemning people he shouldn't condemn, and he was standing by while Christians were murdered, and he was bringing persecution. The reality was he was a troubled soul. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus after Jesus ascended to the heavens. He came back and appeared visibly to the Saul, who then became the Apostle Paul. And Saul knew his identity ultimately was not righteous. He was trying to earn his righteousness, but then Jesus struck him. Jesus chained him, uh, changed him. He began following him. He changed his, his name from Saul to Paul because something radically has become different in his life. And the apostle Paul knew this. And so he became then a messenger of the gospel, referring to the good news of Jesus Christ, that your life can be changed. You can go from being spiritually flatlined to being spiritually alive. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have a new identity. You can have the presence of Jesus, his spirit, his power working with you. You need to move forward. He, he got so excited about the gospel that he took off and became the world's really first missionary, radical, most celebrated missionary that we've ever known. And he says this in the book of Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So this is right at the front part of this beautiful, incredible letter he's writing to the Christians in Rome to help them to wake up to who they really are. And then he says this in verse 117. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written. The righteous will live by faith. Where did that come from? He was a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures. He knew that Habakkuk had said that 600 and some years before him. And he says, listen, here's the truth. The gospel is that the righteous will live by faith. Now, do you notice one word has changed here? He takes out the word his faith, referring to our personal faith, and refers to faith in its broader dimension, which is being foreshadowed by Habakkuk, that we are justified, we are made righteous, we come alive spiritually by our faith in the one who, what? The one who is righteous. The righteousness of God leads us into this incredible change through faith. The gospel reveals three things. It comes from that verse. The first is that the gospel reveals the righteous, that righteousness in itself comes from God. The second is that righteousness, the righteousness from God is received only by faith. And the third is that God's righteousness declares one just in his eyes. All that packed into that verse. Don't have a lot of time to unpack it. But that righteousness of God is credited to us. It's imputed righteousness of an alien person. Alien means someone other than you. It's not infused righteousness where you try to get better and better and better. 
I don't know if I, I thought maybe I'd ask this question. I don't know if I, how many of you, I will. How many of you come out of some Catholic kind of background? All right. So there was a big change that happened in the 1500s called the Reformation. And it had to do front and center with this whole understanding of where does your righteousness come from. Because in Catholicism, you seek forgiveness of your sins and you're given forgiveness. But then you try to infuse and keep building up your righteousness. There's a works effort to become in right standing with God, to become justified with God. And as that kind of understanding works its way through, you become paralyzed sometimes because you can never, ever become as good as God needs for you to be able to be entered into his presence, into his heaven in eternity, or in his presence personally. But our righteousness comes from God, and it's not infused as we try to become new and approved. It's imputed as an alien righteousness. God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. It happens by simple faith. And that faith can bring transformation in all of our lives. That's why in Galatians 3.1, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Paul brings it back again. He brings it back in a judicial sense. Romans 1.17, in another version, it, it, it brings that same kind of concept, but it's that not only the righteous will live by faith, but the, the just will live by faith, it says in New King James. Martin Luther, he was a monk. Catholic circles, overwhelmed by the sense of his sin, his unrighteousness. He would do all kinds of things sleeping on cold floors, doing other kinds of things to be involved in trying to infuse better righteousness. I got to become better. I got to become better. I got to become better. He went to Rome and he climbed up on his knees, what's called the Scala Sancta in the Basilica of St. John in Laterano. People still climbing up these steps it's believed or word has it that those were the steps that were brought from Israel that Jesus climbed when he went in to see Pilate in the Praetorium. And so Martin Luther, he was climbing steps, doing penance, trying to become more righteous, trying to become justified before God because he knew he wasn't measuring up. He's bleeding at the knees. And guess what verse comes to him? The verse from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He went back to Wittenberg. He began to contemplate it. He ended up nailing 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg uh, church building. It started the whole Reformation. Protestant. The word Protestant means protest. Protest that you don't become right with God by a sense of just doing more works or indulgences. Other things that were a part that he was just bothered by. He didn't start to, to, to move in a different direction than the Catholic Church and start a whole new system of, of uh, spirituality. But he was bothered that this had been hidden for the dark ages. And so he left those stairs. He walks into to the dark ages and he brings the light that, friends, you do not become saved by your good works. No one has enough good works to become righteous before God. But God can in 
impute his righteousness to you if you will but by faith believe in him. And that's exactly what he did. These words, solifida, by faith alone, became the battle cry, the heart cry of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said this in 1517 when it happened. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Can you contemplate a life lived in devotion, trying to work your way to righteousness. And then you realize you don't have to do that anymore. You have to simply bend your knee and yield your life to God himself. And it's by grace, through faith, that you are justified. I'd be feeling pretty good too. Interesting thing is a hundred and... 50 years after Luther spoke this, which was, what, 1,500 years after Paul exhorted it in Scripture, which was 600 years after Habakkuk had said it, that there was another guy that influenced so much of the Christian movement today and even the movement that we're a part of called the Christian Missionary Alliance. And that is John Wesley. He's a Moravian missionary in America trying to reach the Indians. But he said to himself, I'm here to save the Indians, but who will save John Wesley? Because John Wesley from England was struggling with guilt and grief about who he was as an individual. And so he was back in London and he was walking around on Aldersgate Street. In Aldersgate Street, he heard some singing in an upper room, which was from the followers of, uh, of George Fox, which, which was of the Quaker movement. He said, in the big evening, I went very unwillingly to a society, a group meeting in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So he's reading about how Luther woke up and say, it's not by works, it's by faith. And he says, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and has an assurance, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Waking up. Heart strangely warmed. Can I just ask you today, has your heart ever been strangely warmed by the truth that it's not by works that you become spiritually alive, but it's by simple faith? Nothing you can do can earn his righteousness. His righteousness needs to be placed in and upon your life. And it can happen here this morning through faith. Spiritually dead, made alive by faith. Two great men of God, Martin Luther in the 1500s, John Wesley, 150 years later. Who's that next person?
Would your life be changed and transformed by faith? I'm going to take the time this morning and watch a three to four minute video clip of someone that most all of us would know. We're hesitant as Christians sometimes when we see celebrities wrestle with issues of the faith. Is it real? Is it a con job? This last week, Zane Lowe's of Apple Music interviewed Justin Bieber. A year ago, Justin Bieber shut down his music because of where he was at in his life, needing to seek God. He came out with this interview this week and has been beaten up some by Christians. I know it's always iffy, but we know with some of the people he's now seeking spiritual counsel from and guidance. I think you'll find this testimony interesting because he's wrestling with the whole thing of how do I see my life changed? It can be changed through Jesus Christ. I just didn't know what the heck was going on. And so I really took a deep dive in my faith, to be honest. I just went deep into like, I believed in Jesus, but I never really like, you know, when it says following Jesus is actually turning away from sin. And so there's no, what, what it talks about in the Bible, it's like there's no obedience. There's no faith without obedience. So it's like I had had faith about like, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, but I never really implemented it mm. into my life. I never like was like, I'm going to be obedient. So when did you decide to actually move within the guidelines and how did you find yourself away from, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to drink or do drugs or sleep around or what all these other distractions. How did you get out of that world? What was the turning point for you? I think it was my perception of who Jesus really was, you know. Um, I'd had really bad examples of Christians in my life uh, who would say one thing and do another. So they were the, my direct example of who Jesus was. That's why you didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. Good role models. Yeah. The way I look at my relationship with God and with Jesus is I'm not trying to earn God's love by doing good things. God has already loved me for who I am before I did anything to earn and deserve it. It's a free gift by accepting Jesus and just giving your life to him. And what he did is the gift. The forgiveness is the thing that we look at and, you know, I'm going to worship you, God, because you gave me something so good. Do you think that if you hadn't redefined what Jesus was and reclaimed it into something that was worthy of practice for you, which then led you on a path of reconciliation with your wife. Mm -hmm. Do you think the person that, you, the you of then, was on a path of self-destruction? Do you feel that you were on a self, you were self-destructing? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would have, for sure, 100%. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be alive, for sure. It was dark, really dark. So I'm very, very grateful to have influences in my life that have played a huge part in me seeing their relationship with Jesus and their relationship with their wives and their relationship with their kids and saying, that's what I want mm. and um, striving after that. So Jesus wasn't this religious elite guy that, you know, came to, um, but he was, he was in the dirt and uh, he found me in my dirt and pulled me out. Like I said before, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower and uh, I just want to be led by when you accept Jesus, he says that now you walk with the Holy Spirit. So I think I just want to be led by, by the Holy Spirit. We're not really good at the end of the day. At the core, I don't believe 
I don't believe the humans are good. And people might, you know, twist this and make me seem like I'm saying humanity's not good. I don't truth. know. But Tell you the truth. I just feel like at the core, I fight every day temptation and things that, you know, are instinctive to do, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, lie, be greedy, all these things that just naturally come. Those naturally come. I got to fight to not be that. Uh, maybe humanity's, you know, it's it's come to a place of being really, you know, it's it's broken. I mean, it's just just look around. I mean, the pain in this world, it's just so, it's like, it's obvious. And uh, people are looking for hope and they're looking for a way out and they're looking for an escape and they're looking for, um, they're looking for truth and they're looking for, um, yeah, and I'm just, uh, I've gotten the opportunity um, with my journey to just see a God who accepts me, loves me. Um, they call him the Savior, um, and I believe that to be true, mm. that Jesus saved me. I just didn't know what the heck was going on. And I once heard the phrase at the ground's level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter what our walk is in life. We're all the same. We're human beings that are broken, sinful, that need God's mercy and grace. And pray for someone like him or Kanye West as they try to push forward with a Christian faith in a very hostile world. But friends, what about you? The whole spiritually flatline thing to come to life you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but the Apostle Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, he says in Ephesians 2, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Will you pray with me? Across this room here this morning, Lord, on this anniversary day for the miracle you worked in our life, I want to ask that you would strangely warm the hearts of some people. And I pray that you would speak to them about how they can be made right through your grace by a simple act of faith here this morning. That faith of turning away from their sins. The act of faith of being able to embrace you and your righteousness and invite you to come and live within them. Lord, may they turn away from trying to do everything they can by good works to earn any right standing with you. And may they just reckon with who they are and who you are. And may there be a transformation by you imputing your alien righteousness into their life and them becoming home. Across this room this morning, if you are in a place where you have never prayed a simple prayer of faith receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior I'm going to invite you to do that but I'm going to ask you to do something rather bold with heads bowed and eyes closed 
If you want to become spiritually alive this morning by receiving Jesus Christ and his righteousness as your Lord and Savior, will you just stand and acknowledge before him that you want to be saved by faith and to be justified through him. Anyone across this room, if you've ever doubted it or maybe you've had questions, am I, am I there or am I not? Yes. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Others? Just stand. I see that. Anyone else? How can I try to live by faith when I've not really ever become alive by faith? Anyone else? As I include you in this prayer as we close. I know it's a bold ask, but you don't stand before me. You stand before Jesus, and he loves you. Just a few more moments, anyone else? With those who are standing, and even if you're not able to stand, but you want to pray this in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, just pray this prayer. All of us, let's pray it out loud. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for what you have done, for dying for me on a cross and being raised from the dead. And I now repent of my sin. I turn from my indifference and I turn towards you. And I invite you into my life, Jesus, by faith. May your righteousness become mine. And may I, from this day forward, as you enable me, live for you. Will the rest of you stand? Amen and amen. Will you welcome those into the kingdom of God this morning that stood? We're just going to sing a refrain.